All right, New Life, uh, go ahead and head back to your seat. And if you have a Bible or a device with you, go ahead and go to Acts chapter 1, because we love the Bible around here. Amen? We love God's Word, and uh, we're going to dive into it this morning. You know, one of the benefits of studying church history is it just brings into clearer focus the fact that we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, right? Mission-minded, Jesus-loving people, some of whom paid a dear price to spread the gospel. And uh, I love that. I love the fact that we're part of something that spans the millennium. In fact, when you think about it, you can actually trace the lineage of the entire worldwide Christian movement back to just 11 guys. Did you know that? 11 bewildered men standing there, looking up into the clouds, watching their friend Jesus disappear, kind of befuddled, wondering what was going on. I imagine that they had no idea of what all would transpire in the upcoming weeks and months ahead, and certainly they couldn't anticipate the scope of their impact over the next 2,000 years. Well, what we're doing in this series that we've titled Ecclesia is we're going back to the beginning of church history to understand how our story began and then looking to see what we can take from the first century and bring forward into our context now in the 21st century to help us understand the mission that Jesus has for his church. And you might recall from last week that we talked about the fact that just before Jesus left and went back to heaven, he entrusted those 11 guys with a huge mission. Do you remember that? It's found in Acts 1.8. Luke records it from the lips of Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's the mission that Jesus entrusted with his church. You say, what happened after that? Well, verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, in your Bible, there's probably a header for that section titled, The Ascension, right? Or something like that, The Ascension of Our Lord. And of course, that event is well known to us, but you've got to believe that it would have been extremely unsettling to those 11 guys. They hadn't seen anything like this before. And while Jesus had said that he was leaving, he didn't say when and he didn't say how. And now this, what's going on? You know, for years, uh, creative teams in churches have struggled with how to depict this event in their Easter, Easter dramas without sustaining any casualties, using all sorts of pulleys and wires and harnesses to hoist fake Jesuses up into the rafters. Well, evidently, it was mystifying to those first disciples also, because as it happened, it says they just stood there staring up into the clouds. Jesus, what's going on, guys? Thankfully, it says God sent a couple of angels to kind of jolt them back into reality. Why are you just standing there? You, you will see Jesus again. Remember, he promised that he's going to come back. And so they managed to pull themselves together. And Luke tells us what they did next. And he records it in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem 
from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Here's some names. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now did you know that in Jesus' little band of disciples there were two Judases? How'd you like to have been this guy? You know, people are saying, Judas, yeah, I've heard about you. He's like, no, 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 I'm the other Judas. <laughs> Maybe I'll change my name to Frederico or something, you know. And so it says, all these, verse 14, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so there they were, together, waiting and praying. And I think Luke wants us to see that prayer and unity go together. You know, it's hard to stay at odds with someone, a spouse or a family member, that you're praying with regularly. And so he shows us that unity flows from prayer. Now, in addition to the people who were named there, there were about 100 other people gathered in that upper room, so it must have been a pretty big room, 120 people. And that group, it says, included Jesus' mother, whose name was... Mary and his brothers. Did you know that the New Testament gives us the names of five men who are said to be Jesus' brothers? So Mary and Joseph, after they had Jesus, had other children. At least five brothers, at least two sisters. So Jesus had siblings. Can you imagine growing up in the same household as the Son of God? The perfect Son of God who never sinned? And so it's uh, clear from Scripture that they did not believe in him during those years. But after he rose from the grave, they were converted to faith in their brother, their half-brother, Jesus. And they were all there with that group, praying and waiting, praying and waiting, doing what they recalled Jesus telling them to do, which was to wait, remember? And what were they waiting for? The coming of the Holy Spirit to empower them for the mission that Jesus had given them. But Luke tells us that first there's this little matter that needs to be addressed, something that churches ever since, all through the centuries, have grappled with, a leadership transition. How many of you have been in a church where there's been a leadership transition? It can get kind of messy, can it? <laughs> well, that had happened. Judas Iscariot, you recall, had betrayed Christ. He had defected from the movement. And then full of remorse but not repentance... He had hung himself and died a very gruesome death. So the team is now down one from 12 to 11 disciples. And to Peter, it felt just kind of incomplete. And so one day, as they're all meeting together and praying, Peter gets up and he addresses the whole group about the need to replace Judas. Peter must have realized that in God's plan, there was to be some continuity from the old covenant into the new covenant and there needed to be 12 disciples to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel and so Peter gets up and he quotes some passages from the old testament that hinted at the the betrayal of Messiah and also the fact that the betrayer would need to be replaced with someone else so who would be qualified for that role to replace Judas as a member of the apostles well the pool of potential candidates was really pretty small because of the criteria. Verse 21, Peter speaking. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John, that's when John baptized Jesus, until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, that was the ascension, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, I think Luke, the writer, wants us to see a couple things here. First, that leaders follow scripture. You know, in the kingdom of God, true spiritual leaders are always directing people's attention back to what? The Bible. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to the Word of God. Let's find out what God says in His Word. True spiritual shepherds are always taking people back to the Word of God. And that's what Peter did, opening up the Old Testament and saying, See, we need to replace Judas because that's what the Old Testament said that we should do. But a second thing I think Luke wants us to see, because he's kind of placed Judas and Peter in this juxtaposition here, and I think he's wanting to contrast the lives of those two. Think about it. Both Peter and Judas were followers of Jesus, right? They hung around Jesus in that little band of disciples for three years. Both heard his teachings and saw his miracles. Both of them failed Jesus in his moment of need, denying him, turning away from him. But one of them repented, truly repented, and Jesus restored him to a place of now actually leading the other disciples, and eventually he would lead that whole group of believers, and that was Peter. Quite a transformation, wouldn't you agree? From disappointing denier of Christ to now spiritual shepherd for Christ, feeding the word of God to his sheep, to Jesus' sheep. And so Peter, the restored one, lays out the scriptural basis for needing to replace Judas. And so you can imagine being there. They're looking around thinking, okay, who who fits the profile for what he just told us? And they saw that there were two men who fit that profile, met the conditions. And it says that the people prayed, great prayer. Great prayer to pray when we're choosing leaders for our ministries and our churches. Lord, show us whom you have chosen. Isn't that a good prayer? Lord Jesus, you're the head of the church. Show us whom you have chosen. And according to the custom of the day, they cast lots, it says, giving some space for the sovereignty of God to be in operation. And the lot fell to a guy named Matthias. And so this man, about whom we know very little, was added to the apostolic team, and the full complement was restored. There were now, once again, 12 apostles, a dozen disciples. And so now with that important matter resolved, it was now God's time, his appointed time for the coming of the Holy Spirit. How many days after the resurrection of Jesus, do you know? 50 days after his resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, and occurring right on a very special feast day in that city called Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God and I'll tell you what, we could spend not just a whole sermon, but a whole series delving into the unique dynamics of what all happened when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the church. You can read Luke's account in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, but let's just say it was a wonderful, stunning, unique demonstration of power. It attracted lots of attention from the townspeople due to the supernatural phenomena that accompanied it. The Lord apparently wanted it to be an unmistakable, unforgettable experience, such that no one who was ever there 
or who heard about what happened could ever say, hmm, I wonder, did the Holy Spirit ever really come? And someone say, do you remember everybody's hair was on fire? Do you remember there was this sound of a tornado with no wind? Do you remember the guys standing up and speaking Swahili and other languages that they had never gone to school to learn? Hello, yes, the Holy Spirit came. It was a momentous event. And when it happened, the, the people in town for the festival heard the commotion and they rushed over to this house to see, you know, what's going on over there? As people are prone to do, right? When there's a commotion going on, what's going on? Let's go check this out. And in that important moment with a crowd gathering and these supernatural phenomena going on, one of the disciples gets up and gives an explanation of what was going on that turned into a sermon. And who was that? Who was it? It was Peter, again, fast becoming the, the spokesperson for the group. And now he's not cowering in fear anymore. He's not hiding out anymore. But now he is filled empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, Peter, this fisherman turned fisher of men, raises his voice, it says, and delivers the very first sermon in the new church era. And as he preaches, as he speaks, he again draws on the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament. This was becoming his custom now to explain what was happening. From the book of Joel in the Old Testament, Peter looks out at this crowd and he repeats the prediction contained in that book that God would one day pour out His Holy Spirit on His people, both men and women, and that this would be accompanied by supernatural signs so that no one could miss it. But you know, it wasn't primarily a sermon about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, comes to glorify who? Jesus. And so the sermon, while offering an explanation for the supernatural manifestations that were going on, directed people's attention to Jesus. Listen to the words of Peter in that sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He concludes the sermon in verse 36 by saying, Let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'll tell you what, that's some powerful, in-your-face, God-centered, gospel-driven, spirit-led, Jesus-exalting preaching, amen? He looked at that crowd of people, many of whom had been in the crowd just weeks before, calling for the crucifixion of Jesus, saying, release Barabbas, take Jesus to the cross, looking in the eyes of some of those same people and saying, you know what, you killed the wrong man. You killed the wrong man. You, with the help of wicked Roman soldiers, called for the execution of the second person of the Holy Trinity. And just in case you were wondering, that's not a good thing. Well, how did they respond? How did they respond? How would you have responded if you were there? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
That's conviction. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We killed God. Is there any hope for us? Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That must have sounded like good news. We killed God, but if we repent, we can be forgiven and even receive the same spirit that all these people have received. Verse 39, for the promise, that's the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, is for you, Peter said, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words. It means it was a long sermon. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about how many? 3,000 souls. So there it is, the birth of the very first Christian church. And Luke wants us to see that it's the preaching of the word of God that creates the church. Just as the universe had been created by the spoken word of God. Now the church of Jesus is birthed by the spoken word of God. And that little band of 11 guys that grew into a group of 120 supporters and followers now explodes into a crowd of 3,000 people, 3,000 freshly saved, brand new followers of Jesus. And that's the story of how it all got started. You say, well, what happened next? You know, there were not only local residents there in Jerusalem who were there that day, but there were people who had traveled from their hometowns to Jerusalem to be there for that festival, and now they were all joined together in this new Jesus movement. And Luke tells us what they did, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves, you might want to circle that phrase, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and awe, there's another important word, awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. There's another important word you might want to circle. Together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you know what happened? Ecclesia happened. Church happened. The people who had believed Peter's message and received the Holy Spirit now began to live out Ecclesia. I think we need to realize that ecclesia is a lifestyle. It says they devoted themselves to it. Some people think that church is an event that you go to once a week. But in the New Testament, church is a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking and living and relating that consumes your life. You're devoted to it. So the ecclesia, the church, was born, and now these people had a new Jesus identity. They had a new Jesus community, and they had a new Jesus lifestyle. 
what I want to do in the next several weeks is to try to describe the characteristics of that ecclesia lifestyle that Luke lays out for us here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an acronym so that you can remember it. And to give credit where credit is due, I borrowed this acronym from Pastor Mark Driscoll, okay? So it's not original with me, but it's good, it's memorable, it fits with what we're talking about here. So let's use the acronym Jesus Church. It's on the back of your study guide there. J-E-S-U-S space C-H-U-R-C-H. We'll forget about the punctuation for now. Here at New Life, we want to be Jesus' church. Amen? He's the head of the church. It's his church. He purchased it with his own blood. And that means staying faithful to some key principles that define that very first church of his. So today we're just going to get to the first two, so don't get nervous, okay? So I'm excited about this. Are you excited? I'm excited. I want you to go share this with other people, so pay attention. First is J. J stands for Jesus-Centered Bible Preaching and Teaching. Jesus-Centered Bible Preaching and Teaching. That's a mark of Jesus' church. That's the principle. Methods of doing that may vary from place to place, from region to region, from generation to generation, but the non-negotiable in Jesus' church is that there's a steady stream of preaching and teaching going on, and it's from the Bible, and it's primarily about Jesus. Luke was careful to show us that it was preaching that gave birth to the church. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice. What's that? You say, that's yelling. No, he raised his voice. He preached to the people and addressed the crowd. That means he got loud. He preached a loud, spirit-empowered, word-saturated, Jesus-centered sermon. And people were cut to the heart with conviction, and they repented. Then after the church was born, it tells us in verse 30, uh, 42 that the new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. So you've got preaching and teaching. And here at New Life, we believe in these. We have a team of preachers who bring the word of God to us in our worship gatherings every weekend. And we have lots of teachers, lots of teachers in this church. Some are teaching children right now. Some are teaching students right now. Some teach in classrooms and seminars. Some teach in small groups that meet in members' living rooms during the week. Lots of teachers. We love that because preaching and teaching and learning is an important part of what we do in the church. And it does need to be from the Bible. Amen? Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. And so the big theological idea here is Jesus' words. We're talking about Jesus' words. Church needs to be centered around His words, not our words, not my words, not yours. Jesus' words. You know, if you ever have a choice between hearing human opinion and the revealed word of the living God, take this. Take God's word. At New Life, we preach and teach from the Bible. We make no apologies for that. And we believe in what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. So here's your theological phrase for the day, okay? We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Inspiration is the old English way of saying it, it was breathed out by God. 
We believe the Bible was breathed out by God. It comes from God. Inspiration. We believe in the verbal inspiration. That means every word in the Bible, every word, even down to the words, were breathed out by God. And plenary means the whole thing. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, minus the table of contents and maps, the whole thing is equally inspired, breathed out by God, by God. And what that all means is this, the Bible is like no other book. It's from God, it's His Word, it's completely true, it tells it like it is, doesn't it? It's universally authoritative, that means it applies to anyone, anywhere on the planet, in any era. It has no errors, it's the very Word of God, and it's primarily about Jesus. And this has been the newer learning for me over the past several years. You know, the Bible's not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. It's for you, and it's for me, but it's not primarily about you and I. It's about Jesus. It's his story, and really, our stories don't make a whole lot of sense until we connect them to his story. So what did Peter raise his voice and preach about? Four steps to being a better you? No. Jesus! He preached about Jesus. And so the big question is for the church, does new life preach and teach Jesus-centered lessons and messages from the Bible? I sure hope so. May it always be so. With adults, with students, with children in small groups, Awana clubs, may we always be preaching and teaching Bible lessons about Jesus. Amen? When we teach from the Bible, we seek to show how whatever we're teaching about connects to Jesus. So for an example, we don't just teach the story of David and Goliath and say that David was a great hero who killed a big ugly giant. I mean, that is true, but we don't stop there. We show how David was a picture of another warrior king who would come and bravely fight for his people, that a true and better David was coming who would face off against the giants of sin, death, hell, and Satan, and would kick their butts and cut off their heads and stand victorious and say, I have fought and won the victory for my people. And his name is Jesus, the true and better David. You see, it's all about Jesus. And I, I love when parents tell me, as they do quite often, they say, you know, I love the fact that when I bring my children to New Life Church, to Awana Clubs, to kids' church, to preschool, whatever, that they hear and learn about Jesus. And I say, amen. I love that too. And that should reinforce what they're learning at home, parents, from you about Jesus as well. When we plant new congregations, new ecclesias in other communities, we want this gospel-centered approach to be embedded in the DNA of that new campus so that whether people come here or there, they're hearing Bible preaching and teaching about Jesus, whether they're in large group gatherings or small groups gathered in a home, they're hearing from the Bible about Jesus. So what does the J stand for? Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. Say it with me. Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. That's what they did in Acts 2. That's what we're committed to doing here. E, second letter, J. 
J-E stands for emotional worship. Emotional worship. That's a part of Jesus' church too, an indispensable part. Luke records that awe came upon every soul. In verse, verse 47, he says they were praising God. That's the language of worship. That's people who've been freed from the power and penalty of sin, death, and hell, getting excited about the one who set them free and expressing their heartfelt praise to him in worship. Amen? In Jesus' church, lost people who've been found love Jesus, and they love telling God and each other how they feel about Jesus. And so at New Life, we encourage emotional expression in worship, you know, I was on the phone with a lady, I think it was this past week. I call people who've come you know, three or four times, and I was talking with this lady, and she's, I said, uh, so, what, what have been your impressions of new life so far? And she said, oh, Pastor Steve, I love new life. But she said, I feel so bad, because whenever the band starts up, and the music starts, and the praise team starts to sing, she said, I'm just a mess. I just cry through worship every week. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. I said, ma'am, you don't have to be sorry about that. That just tells me that, that God's working in your heart and life, and he's opening your eyes to see Jesus, and you're grateful for what he's doing for you, and your heart is soft towards him. I said, don't ever lose that, actually. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to express emotion in worship. Did you know that? Did not the Lord himself say to us, love the Lord your God with all your what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's with everything you've got. So it is okay to be emotional during worship. Now, if you're crying during the sermon, I'm not sure what I'm going to make of that, you know. Dear Lord, help him to finish soon. You know, that's something else, but now, worship, we know, is not equivalent to singing, Worship does not equal singing, but worship most certainly includes singing. You ever heard the phrase, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord? That's from the Bible. I don't know about you, but when my heart is glad, I hum, I whistle, and I sing. When my heart is glad, sometimes around the house, at home, I'll be belting out some gospel medley song that I'm making up on the fly, and it usually combines tunes from the 60s, 70s, 80s, skip the 90s, go straight to the 2000s, pull it all together, I'm belting it out. My kids and wife are rolling their eyes like, oh no, there he goes again. Now, I think it's a gift, <laughs> and they're blessed to have me, but they don't always share that sentiment. When my heart is glad, I sing. Sometimes when my heart is not glad, I need to sing by faith. I sing what I want to be true of me. Biblical worship is responding to God, isn't it? That's what worship is, our response to God. And it's a response that comes from our life and our lips. Both are biblical responses. And so singing is a part of worship. And you know what else? So is shouting. You say, really? Yeah, shout to God with a voice of triumph. Some people hear some others maybe shouting in church and they would frown and say, oh, pastor, no one should be shouting in church. 
church should be reverent. And you know what? There's a place for reverence in the church, isn't there? But did you know there's also a place for shouting? I mean, read the Bible. (laughs) Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Shout unto God with a voice of praise. I love what the Bible says in Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It does not say average is the Lord and averagely to be praised. No, the intensity of our response should mirror the greatness of the object of our worship. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Listen to me, if it is okay for people to shout and stand up and scream when a guy takes a ball and puts it through an orange metal cylinder, if it's okay for us to shout when a guy takes a piece of hickory and smacks a horsehide sphere, if it's okay for us to stand and shout when a guy takes a piece of pigskin and hops across a chalk line on grass, then it is okay for believers to shout about the God who created us and redeemed us from death, sin, hell, and the grave. You can shout about that. It is okay. In fact, something's kind of twisted and warped if you can shout about these other things and not shout about that. Praise God for what he puts in us to offer back to him. The big theological idea here is the worthiness of Jesus. His worthiness. So yes, we clap and cheer our favorite band, and we tweet our followers about our new favorite restaurant, and we stand and yell for our favorite teams. That's all okay. But as Christians, we never, ever forget that Jesus, our champion, took our hell for us so we could live with him forever in eternity, and we get a little excited about that at times. And that's a good thing. He is worthy, and so emotional praise and worship is a distinct characteristic of Jesus' church. And you know what? It will continue to be forever. You may not worship Jesus with a lot of emotion here, but if you're in heaven, you will. (laughs) You will. And I should add this. You will worship. You're going to worship. You were created for worship. No matter who you are, Christian, non-Christian, pre-Christian person, You will worship something, a bank account, a position, a possession, a bottom line, a goal, a destination, a house. You will worship someone, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a celebrity, a spouse, yourself, your kids. You will worship. You were created to worship. The big question is, do you worship Jesus? as the supreme treasure of your life, or have you allowed something or someone else to crowd him out, and you're all excited about them, you're always talking about that thing, but with Jesus, it's kind of, whatever. There's something quite wrong about that. Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching and emotional worship, and we're going to stop there for now. We'll pick up next week with the letter S, and some of you always think you know what the blanks are before we tell you, so you can go ahead and try to guess what those other letters might represent as marks of Jesus' church. But let's say the first two together. J stands for Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching, and E, emotional worship of Jesus. So let's seek to live out 
those things so that Jesus is honored, so that believers are encouraged, and so that a watching world will know what we're all about and will ache, will ache to be part of an ecclesia, a community like this. And again, I ask you this week, are you all in yet with Jesus Church? Remember last week I gave you that little scale and over here was like unengaged, you know, disinterested and over here was, yeah, I'm all in. I've exchanged agendas with Jesus. His agenda is mine. I'm all in. And I'm praying that God will move all of us to that point when we're fully engaged with Jesus' church and his mission that he's given to us. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are here where two or three are gathered in your name. You're here, you're in China, you're in South America, you're in Europe, you're in Canada, you're in South America, you're here. And as your people, we come, we worship you. You are so good. We acknowledge you came, you lived the life we could never live. You died in our place, you took our punishment or hell you served our sentence in our place you rose from the grave you ascended back up into heaven you make intercession for your people now and you are coming again i pray we'd be a congregation of people with one eye always looking for the return of our lord and savior but in the meantime lord jesus by the power of your spirit may we be on mission with you being your witnesses and living out what it means to be your church we need your spirit to do that so spirit of God be strong in us fill us may we be emptied of ourselves and filled with you glorify Jesus through us help us as we respond now in worship in Jesus name I pray amen so we believe in responding to the word of God and we're going to respond through worship through prayer our prayer partners are available to pray with you about whatever the Lord might be talking to your heart about. So come and and receive prayer. Let's stand and worship. Emotional worship is okay. Let's glorify our Lord.